Hi, everybody. It's Steph. I hope you're doing well. It's uh, noon on Saturday, September the 16th. It's bathroom time, and that means that uh, I get to clean my thoughts and my tub at the same time. So I, uh, I haven't done media recommendations in forever, but I thought I would recommend just a little bit. Uh, I, I'm sort of a big swing fan. I just find the music peppy and happy. And I guess I would suggest, if you're interested in that kind of music, there's lots of great oldies and so on, right? And the, the Glenn Millers and the Duke uh, Wellingtons and so on. But some modern stuff is actually pretty good, too. You might want to check out um, a Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. It's a great band. They do a fantastic version of uh, I Want to Be Like You from The Jungle Book. Uh, horns are just fantastic. They also do a good version of Benny the Moocher. They have an original song, I think it is, called You and Me and the Bottle Makes Three. Also very good. You might want to check that out. And uh, the Cherry Popping Daddy's Zoot Suit Riot. Got some great scat bit in the middle and uh, a great song. Might want to have a listen to that too. All right. From swing to Islam, let's uh, have a little chat uh, about a question that came up on the board this morning. Uh, which is a, from a uh, another forum that a uh, a member is listening is is uh, is watching. Uh, we won't consider this a rank betrayal. Uh, actually, we will, but we'll stay quiet about it to avoid uh, accusations of culted. But um, this is the post from another uh, forum. Someone says this new wave of protests after the Pope's speech is highlighting a fact of our times. Muslims, the Muslims, are the most easily offensible people in the universe. I mean, all it takes is a few poorly chosen words for them to go on a protesting spree some even burning churches and threatening embassies. And all of the time, they also bring cameras and very convenient signs. In English, it seems that Muslim protesters are also the world's biggest media whores. Now, we all know what the apologists will say. Quote, they are poor and desperate. They are angry about the exploitation from the West. They have no other way to channel their frustration. That's BS. The overwhelming majority of the world is poor and frustrated, in fact, most important, the Muslims who usually live in what the UN classifies as middle-income countries. And before all the accusations start, I don't believe that there is something inherently wrong, wrong with Islam. In my opinion, all religions can be bad or good. It's all about traditions and interpretations. But nowadays, Islam is the troublemaking religion. And it's also the religion of the easy, easily offended, which is the main point of this thread. Yes, sometimes Christian or Jewish groups get offended by some pretty stupid stuff. But when it happens... What we have is some 10 or 15 people protesting and looking ridiculous. When the Muslims are offended, they torch churches and they keep marching for week after week. It reminds me of an older thread by Bozo. Nobody can take this anymore. Everyone has problems and torching and protesting ain't going to make them disappear. I think we can all agree that there is a problem. And my question is, why are they so easily offended? Personally, I have no idea and would like some insight. And I'm not sure whether I have an idea. Well, I know that I have an idea. I'm not sure if it's helpful. But uh, I think that in order to understand the uh, exquisite, almost hibiscus-like sensitivity of the Muslim population, and I'll talk about Muslims, but of course this is a general to uh, just about anybody who believes things that are false, uh, you know, you sort of need to become, if you're going to get involved in these kinds of disputes, you need to familiarize yourself with a little topic that psychologists call projection. And you will, I think, if you get to the hang of this idea, you'll recognize that people become uh, the most aggressive in their beliefs when those beliefs are, are false. I mean, <laughs> the, the maiden doth protest too much is a fairly important uh, principle here. And as Jung said it, when he asked a patient, uh, a woman who was, I think, uh, uh, considered what was considered back then a hysteric, 
he said to her, he asked her a particular question, and she said, no, 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 no. And he said to her, you know, one no would have been sufficient, right? Which is quite true. One no is sufficient. But, uh, of course, she is uh, overcompensating, or was overcompensating in response to this question, because uh, she was not uh, sure of what it is that she was saying. And we tend to, uh, when we've been brutalized as children, we tend to compensate for the uncertainty and the bullying that we experienced with an over-adherence, right? So psychologically, right, you, you can't ever beat psychology any more than you can beat biology, right? But psychologically, the way it works is sort of like this. So let's say that I am uh, some poor Muslim kid, and if you've heard the podcast about the apple, then you know, sort of know the backstory behind this. So, you know, my parents say that Allah exists, and, and so I'm going to go to heaven or to hell, and I have to obey the... Sharia law and the Quran and all this sort of stuff, right? And the Prophet Muhammad and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, none of it's true, right? I mean, none of it's true even in a logical sense, let alone in an empirically verifiable sense, right? I mean, mathematics can't be empirically verified uh, it's sort of a, a, in, in the pure form, right? Of course, numbers exist because there are such things as discrete entities in the universe, and so uh, because there is space between objects, we have such a thing as numbers, right? If it was all a big fog, there would be no such thing as numbers, or us, right? So, <laughs> so um, you can't even get to a proof of any of the propositions of religion, even in a purely mathematical or logical sense. They're completely self-contradictory. And so what happens is you don't believe it. Right, So when you're told all of this stuff as a kid, you don't believe it. But, you know, the biological imperative, which we're all sort of born with, is, you know, pretty much survival at just about all costs. And so we end up, you know, forcing ourselves to believe it, right? This is the trauma uh, that's really at the heart of religious belief, that we are horrified uh, by the fact that we're being lied to for brute self-interest, that our parents are not interested in our uh, development as, as individual souls, but are only interested in getting us to conform to brutal, uh, the brutal fantasies of others. So we're horrified by this, of course, and what happens then is that we end up conforming. Now, we don't believe any of it, and it seems to me quite likely that, uh, I, cer I certainly can remember this phase, where we go through a period of, of skepticism, right? So we go through this period where we say, well, what about this and what about that? And what happens, of course, is that we get met with you know, blanket hostility. Right? So uh, we end up uh, with uh, rage uh, resulting from you know, any sort of honest questions about the beliefs that are being put forward. Right? We ask, well, if this is the case, then what about this? Right? And who created God, and, and how do we know it's true, and, and this and that. And you may not have gone through a process like this explicitly as a child, but you probably either saw other people getting attacked for uh, being questioned, uh, or you just kind of generally got the idea as a whole that to uh, if you ask questions, you're going to be attacked, right? I mean, this is it's this sort of totalitarian uh, essence to what it is that we call culture, right? And culture is all false. And, uh, uh, you know, if it's true, then it's science, right? So culture is all false, and you know, people end up uh, believing this stuff because they're frightened, right? Because they don't want to get attacked, right? When you're a kid, you're defenseless, you're dependent, and so on, so... That's the biggest power disparity you'll ever have, even between yourself and the government if you're thrown in prison. And uh, people are terrified, right? And, and so they just don't... Children are terrified, so they stop, they stop asking questions. Now, just because you stop asking a question 
uh, because you're frightened, it doesn't mean that the questions go away. Right? It doesn't mean that, that you suddenly... Just because you stop talking about a backache or a headache doesn't mean that the headache itself uh, goes away. Right? So it's sort of fairly important. Repression is not elimination. I mean, it's impossible to eliminate uh, emotions uh, within, the, within the mind or whatever. Um, and so when you um, have the questions and you're lied to as a child in the Muslim world, or of course in the West in terms of statism and socialism and perhaps religion as well, so when you're lied to for brute self-interest, you could even accept that, right? If you were if you lied to honestly, so to speak. So if your parents said, well, you know, you have to kind of talk about this Muslim stuff uh, because if you don't, uh, you're going to get attacked, right? So, you know, we've got to kind of stick together here. We know it's nonsense, but if you don't spout it, then you're going to be uh, attacked. So uh, let's all <laughs> let's all get our story straight, you know, like... A, a criminal family trying to get their story straight or whatever. And so they don't do that, though. Right? They, they say it's true, right? Because it would be kind of tough for the parents to uh, tell the children that they were lived in terror of some external authority and that they the children should comply to whatever the majority is uh, because of fear and so on, right? Because the parents want to pretend to be heroes and noble and virtuous in their children's eye, eyes because their parents are... I don't know, as Jung said once, he said, most parents are just ordinary, little incompetence, barely more than half children themselves, which I actually think is quite true. <laughs> so, so what happens is you have all of these, um, these questions, uh, the, the, the natural movements uh, of your rational mind to strive to understand the, the universe. And of course, as a child, you are gaining all of these principles that are absolutely essential to your survival through the uh, through the use of your senses, right? Through the information that's provided by your senses, right? So, you know, if you're <laughs> if you're uh, if you're crossing a street, when your parents teach you how to cross a street, they say look both ways and make sure that no traffic is coming, right? So they say rely on the evidence of your senses and don't try and and cross them, right? <laughs> and if you see a car coming, then you accept the evidence of your senses. You accept that the car is there, that it's coming towards you that if you step out into traffic, it's going to hit you, and if it does hit you, then you're going to get physically injured or killed, and that's a bad thing. So, of course, when your parents are teaching you about the world from a sort of basic pragmatic physical health standpoint, then they say, do X, Y, or Z. Don't climb too high on the monkey bars if you're too young because you will end up falling and blah, blah, blah. So you get all of these instructions from your parents, and, you know, go to school, you follow this route, this route is not going to magically change overnight, you can't wish it to be different, you can't will it away, and so on. What they don't generally say is something like, when you are crossing the street, what you should do, or when you want to cross the street, oh, child of mine, then what you should really do to be an effective street crosser is you should uh, close your eyes, you should pray to uh, Allah, to open the way for you and just step out into traffic, right? They don't, they don't sort of say that. And they don't say that we're not going to teach you anything about God because God will speak to you directly and all you need to do is wait for God to talk to you and God will reveal to you everything in a far more pure manner than we could ever teach you, right? That would sort of be, be logical, right? I mean... If, uh, if somebody wanted to teach you uh, Aristotle, or if you, you, were, you sort of had to learn Aristotle, 
and Aristotle was alive and infinitely available to take your questions, and more than happy to do so, then it wouldn't really make any sense to sit there and say, well, we're not going to go and talk to Aristotle. What we're going to do is we're going to go and talk to a bunch of people who've written really contradictory interpretations of Aristotle and his thoughts, and we're going to try and figure out which one of these people is correct uh, based on whatever whim or feeling that we have in this area. And you wouldn't really do that, right? You'd, you'd sort of say, let's go to the source. Let's go ask Aristotle what he meant by this and that and have it cleared up for once and for all, especially because you know, what Aristotle says is the absolute unvarnished and total truth. So it wouldn't really make any sense to try and find some substitute for Aristotle when you wanted to learn about Aristotle. Of course, that's not really the case either, right? I mean, when, um, when they're, you know, when I guess Muslim kids or any religious kids are taught Euclidean geometry, then they're told, you know, well, these are the principles. This is what you learn. Uh, you can work it out for yourself. It's logical. It can be marked. It's accurate. Same thing when they're learning grammar or words or whatever. That's the wrong word. You should use this word. That's incorrect and so on. So that's how the children are taught. And of course, if they, you get the idea. If they become scientists or doctors or whatever, that process just continues. Um, when you want to learn mathematics, right, you go directly to the mathematics textbook. You don't go to contradictory interpretations of possible numbers to try and learn mathematics, right? You go, you learn, you practice, and you mark sort of a true and false in particular areas. But of course, in religion, things are things are completely different, right? So if I'm evil religious instructor parent number 12 billion and whatever, then I'm going to sit you down at one time when you're a kid, and I'm going to say to you, uh, listen, the, uh, the ultimate truth about life is, um, is, is uh, spoken uh, by a guy who lives in a box under my bed. And, and it's a little box, but, but he's real. And you look at the box, and I show you the box. It's like a, it's a matchbox, right? Like an inch around or something. <laughs> you say, really? A uh, guy lives in there who, who tells you everything about the ultimate truth of life? And you say, well, yeah, absolutely. It's like, well, that doesn't seem too likely. Can I, can I talk to him? And people say, oh, absolutely. You can talk to him any time that you want. And they say, great, lift the lid, and, uh, and I want to talk to him. And then they say, well, no, I mean, you, you can't talk to him directly, but you can ask me. You can ask me what the, the little man in the box has to say about the really important things in life, right? And you say, oh, so, so you can talk to him. It's like, yeah, I can talk to him. And you say, okay, great, and I can talk to him too. Yes, okay, great, then you don't actually need to tell me anything. I can just go ask this guy in the box myself, right? You don't need to. You know, it would be sort of a waste of time and probably would in involve some inaccuracies uh, for me to ask you what the guy in the box says. But instead, you know, I'll just go talk to the guy in the box myself. And then they say, well, no. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You can't open the box and you can't, uh, I'm not going to let you learn about life from the guy in the box. I'm going to tell you what the guy in the box actually said, right? And then you say, well, now I'm really starting to get confused. You say that the guy in the box exists, that he's got all the truth about everything, and that uh, it's absolutely essential that I get all of this knowledge, but instead of me talking to the guy in the box, i got to talk to you instead. Like, what kind of sense does that make, right? I mean, now you're really... And then, of course, what happens is you get beaten, right, for being impious and for asking questions. And that's a terrifying thing. It's a totally terrifying thing. And, of course, the analogy, while sounding absurd, is actually very accurate, I do believe, because you are supposed to be able to talk to God, right? I mean, if, if God existed and God uh, wanted people to learn about how 
buddy Jesus died for their sins or, or whatever, then God would sit down and, and talk to children, right? God would appear to children and speak to them quite, quite reasonably and explain to, it, uh, explain to them all of this, right? And you, you can't say it's because God doesn't like to intervene because, of course, he has intervened in the writing of the Bible and so on, right? So when children are told that this guy in the box knows everything, and that they should uh, uh, believe it, but the, they can't actually talk to the guy in the box, right? It's like, no, no, I'll tell you what the guy in the box really wants you to do. Uh, you can kind of talk to him, but you can't really uh, talk to him, and I'm going to tell you everything about what the guy in the box really wants you to do, because I'm the Pope or the priest or the imam or whatever. And this is all the most patent nonsense, right? Any uh, Children are incredibly rational deep down and innately, and so what happens, of course, is that children go, you know, I, <laughs> I really don't think that's the case. And if you ever have uh, any doubts about that, you can simply try this. You know, if you, if you know any children or whatever, you can simply try this, right? So uh, the day after Halloween, when the kids have got a bag of candy, tell them that there's an invisible guy in the room who's telling them that they need to give all their candy to you, right? And just... just you know, just see what kind of reaction the kids get, right? The kids don't say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Let me give you all my candy. What they'll say is, oh, come on, you just want my candy, right? <laughs> don't need to make up all this stuff. Uh, children are incredibly rational, right? And, and so <laughs> if you try that, and, it, you know, feel free to try that experiment and do let me know how it goes. I absolutely guarantee you that unless the child is completely broken in spirit, terrified of everyone and perceives an implicit threat in what you're saying, you're not going to get the candy, you're not going to get the candy, right? And that's not really going to be the case. You can also, if you like, go to uh, a woman and say to the woman that you need to sleep with me because my invisible friend says that you need to sleep with me. I doubt very much that she's going to say, you know, great, let's, let's lube up and hit the town. Uh, she's going to say, no, you just want to sleep with me. Don't, don't make up all this silliness about some invisible guy uh, telling me that telling you and telling me that that's what's required and so on. So people are perfectly capable of piercing this complete ridiculous illusion that there's some invisible force in the universe that you're bound to because you're responsible and who can talk and will talk to you but can never really talk to you and you have to talk to the priest or whatever. And even if you're a part of one of those religions or believe in or sort of was raised in one of those religions, where you don't actually need a priest to talk to God, then you still face the problem of uh, explaining just why, if God can talk to everyone and virtue is the most important thing, that God doesn't talk to every child individually, but the child instead has to wade his or her way through a bunch of bullying, incomprehensible, contradictory texts to try and figure out what the truth is, right? I mean, that, that <laughs> doesn't really make any sense. It's the old thing, right? You want to, if you need to learn about Aristotle, then you go and talk to Aristotle, right? If he's available and he's willing to talk to you, you don't reach a bunch of, of texts uh, that are all contradictory and confused and don't help you understand Aristotle other than to understand that Aristotle seems to be very hard to understand, right? You, just, you go talk to Aristotle and get it cleared up. And since uh, all religions believe or posit that you have the capacity to communicate directly with God, then if that were the case then uh, any rational religion, so to speak, not that there would be such a thing, but any, uh, the rational conclusion of that would be, well, of course we're not going to send you to Sunday school because God's going to tell you 
everything that you need to know. Like the, why, would, why would we send you to somebody who may have their own agenda, who may be confused, who may have misunderstood something themselves, who may have been poorly educated? Right? Just If you want to learn about Aristotle, go talk to Aristotle. Don't read the books about, or at least read Aristotle in the original, which of course you can't do with religious texts because they're all written down by people and translated by people and interpreted by people. So the reason I don't want to go into a big proof about uh, a disproof of religion, because I don't feel that that's going to be hugely required, uh, given the amount of energy that I put into that already. But I just sort of wanted to point out, if once we start looking at the question of why are Muslims in particular so uh, offendable or so aggressive, well, it's because they're lied to the most. Right, so when you are told all of this nonsense by uh, somebody, uh, by an authority, by somebody in power, a teacher, parent, or whatever, a priest, when you're taught all of this nonsense, uh, and you're taught these completely contradictory things, right, you don't wander into traffic and pray for uh, Jesus Christ to open the way for you and just trust in. I guess some people do, but they don't tend to reproduce, right? If they do this as kids, because they're you know mostly cream grill work on some big truck, but you're sort of not taught to do that. Uh, you, you know, so, uh, so you're taught in one sense, trust your senses, uh, don't pray for uh, how to cross a street, but look, trust your senses and act accordingly. That's sort of the one approach that is quite rational that people take with their children and their interaction with reality. But when it comes to, to virtue, then you're, you're supposed to pray and listen to people and not trust the evidence of your senses, which of course is that God doesn't exist at all. And so all of this contradictory, of which there are hundreds and hundreds of examples, I won't sort of get into each of them, but all of this stuff that you're taught as a child, which is purely false, and I'm simply picking on the Muslims because that was the topic of the post, but of course when you think about uh, how uh, Western children are taught about the state in public schools, right, that they're taught not to hit, uh, that you don't solve problems through hitting people, you don't solve problems through punching people or pushing them off the monkey bars or anything like that, and that a bully who takes your lunch, even if that bully ends up sharing your lunch with some poorer kid, it's still bullying and you shouldn't do it. And of course, after being told his whole childhood that uh, violence is bad, he then has to pay taxes for the rest of his life because now violence has suddenly become uh, a real good and an honorable obligation and so on. So... Uh, this is exactly the same thing occurs in the West, which is why, you know, we look at the Muslims and we say, boy, you people are, are really oversensitive. You know, you, you people are really, you, know, you take this stuff too seriously and, and you shouldn't be so upset and, and all this, that and the other. And, I mean, that's, that's all pure nonsense. Because if you talk to a Western statist about the welfare state you're going to face exactly the same kind of response as you're talking about with the Muslims. Right? So the idea that over there, uh, people are really irrational and are touchy and will protest at a moment's notice and get aggressive, uh, and that makes them very different from us, is ridiculous. We're all human beings, and we all have the same basic emotional and psychological makeup. And if you think that we in the West are very different and we don't protest over, uh, over things and, and we don't get too aggressive over things, then uh, see what's going to happen if you suggest getting rid of the welfare state or social security, I would imagine that, in fact, I wouldn't do more than imagine, I will guarantee you that what you will end up with is a large amount of people marching and protesting and uh, burning trucks and whatever, turning over buses and so on. So where they have, in that particular realm, they have their irrational uh, uh, you know, preferences and violence and hypocrisies, 
in the realm of religion, well, uh, we have the same thing. We just have it in the realm of statism. So I would say that if you really want to understand the Muslim world and the Muslim mentality, then just have debates about the role of the government with Westerners, and you'll see exactly the same thing. So uh, that's not, they're not different, right? They're not distant, they're not alien, they're not other. They're just like us. It's just that we tend to do it around political redistribution of wealth, and they do it around religion. It's, but it's the same damn nonsense either way. Right? It's just same shit, different pile, frankly. So that's sort of important to understand. You don't want to, you don't want to look at the Muslim world and say, wow, those people are really freaky. Holy crap. You know, that's really bizarre, right? I mean, how, how they march and protest and so on. But uh, you start touching people's political benefits here, uh, the same, exactly the same thing's going to occur, uh, yet it's just harder to see it, right? Harder to see the, the uh, corruption in your own house. It's always easier to, to look at it somewhere else. So as to the question of offense, then we can sort of, I think, start to understand it in this kind of way. When you're told these things as a child, you know that it's nonsense. You know deep down that it's nonsense. And again, if you have doubts about that, just go and try and tell a child to obey you because your invisible friend says that that child has to obey you, the child's going to laugh at you. It's going to look at you skeptically and it's going to say, yeah, right. You know, just try it. Try it with a teenager, right? I mean, it's, they'll get it very quickly. And that just helps you to understand the amount of fear that is involved in the teaching of statism and religion when you realize just how much that natural uh, rational assertiveness gets uh, destroyed and undermined in the minds of children. So... It's all false and it's all nonsense, and children know this perfectly well. So what happens to all of that doubt and that, you know, that, that concomitant or, or coincidental fear, right? So when an authority figure lies to you and controls you and bullies you and terrifies you and manipulates you with, with woe-begone tales of eternal retribution or you know, being evil because you don't support the welfare state or, or whatever, right? Then you kind of get really, really frightened, right? Because your parents, your teachers, your social leaders or whatever are lying to you sort of open, bold-faced and self-contradicting themselves, right? So the government says you have to pay taxes at the same time as it teaches children that violence is a, an evil way to solve problems, right? So... Uh, it's complete hypocrisy even within, like not even compared to an outside paradigm, right? So in the religious world, people teach children about God while saying God is everywhere and can talk to them, right? <laughs> because, of course, if God can't talk to people, then the child's legitimate question is to say, well, how do you know about God then? Well, God did talk to people. Well, why doesn't God talk to me? Well, God does talk to you. He just talks to you through me right? <laughs> in terms of teaching children about, about religion. So even within the, uh, the sort of paradigm itself, that is, um, uh, I think, pretty clear to understand that hypocrisy is rank within the whole process and procedure, and children are perfectly aware of this, right? So, so what happens? What do they do with all of this uh, fear uh, and hatred, right? Because if somebody lies to you and frightens to you and, and is hypocritical and bullies you, you know, obviously for the sake of their own self-interest and control and, and, and so on, then you're going to get kind of angry, right? Now, what's going to happen, though, is that children uh, are fundamentally incapable of processing that their parents are corrupt and destructive, right? This is not something that children 
can do. Right? I mean, they, they don't have the intellectual capacity or maturity, and fundamentally, they need to pretend at least to have a bond with their parents because, as I've mentioned a couple of dozen times, children, um, you know, kind of want to survive. And parents, uh, the, the best way to control children is to threaten the bond, right, which is what parents do all the time, the withdrawal of affection. And we, we've gone over all these ground before. But what happens then is the children are terrified of the parents, and they're really angry at the parents, right? So uh, what happens is the unconscious survival mechanism kicks into place, right? And this is very, very common among children because what happens is the children then say, well, getting, um, asking questions, being curious, being rational is causing my parents to threaten me with physical violence or emotional withdrawal or abandonment or some significant sanction that's a little bit more uh, hefty than, you know, a mild frown and, uh, uh, you know, 30 seconds in the naughty corner. But the child then does this sort of instant calculation association and says, well, when I ask questions, my parents get angry. So either, right, this is sort of the, the logical thing that goes on in the mind, either my parents are bad or the questions are bad, right? So if you ask your parents questions and your parents get angry, logically, either your parents are bad or the questions are bad, right? That's sort of fundamental fact that children don't have any problem processing. Now, children cannot uh, fundamentally process the result of that question to be that my parents are bad, right? So if I ask questions and my parents get angry, then the questions are bad, right? That's sort of the first thing that happens. The questions are bad, and it's bad to ask these questions. And of course, the, um, uh, the Bible uh, and the Koran and, and uh, all of this nonsense, it all... Um, it all sort of backs that up, right? So, you know, questions is evil, doubt is evil, uh, bringing rationality is evil, as Luther said, you know, we must take reason and pluck its eyes out and stuff like that. That reason, uh, rational questions and curiosity lead to uh, doubt, which is evil, uh, leads to, to the, the devil is tempting you, and so questions, right, rational questions are evil. And they are a temptation to be fought and resisted, right? So the, the, they have an answer for all of that, which perfectly coincides with the natural reasoning of the child. If I'm doing something that makes my parents incredibly angry and threaten to dissolve the bond and explicitly or implicitly, and it's usually implicit, though I think it's a little more explicit in the Muslim community, uh, particularly in the area of honor killings, where it's more like breaking the life rather than just breaking the bond. But uh, religion, and of course statism, has no problem with defining rational, curious questions as evil and sent by the devil, right? And in the secular sense, in the sort of socialist sense, uh, it's exactly the same, right? So if you question uh, the the value or moral validity of using violence and so on, then the secular world has all these answers as well, right? So uh, if you question taxation, then you're selfish, you don't want to contribute your share, that you're anti-poor, that like you're evil, right? So whenever you start to question the hypocrisies and uh, falsehoods and motives and controls of sort of the dominant intellectual paradigm, 
than children because it provoked such hostility in their parents and in their school and uniformly, right, in their social circle, among their extended family and so on, then the children inevitably define the questions as evil. Right? If I ask these questions, I get attacked. Then either the people who are attacking me are evil, the questions are evil, the questions are evil. And therefore, anybody who asks these questions or who contradicts the dominant paradigm is, uh, well, question, question, yes, you've got it, you in front, yes, evil. I think that's fairly clear and not too hard to, to figure out, although I can't believe I've stretched it out this long. Hey, you know, sometimes the bathrooms take a little longer to clean, and you get some repetition and filler. Well, sorry, let me correct that. You get slightly more repetition and filler than you would in a regular podcast. So, so what happens then? Well, uh, as these people grow up, then this whole perspective, uh, you know, kind of gets hardened and kind of gets uh, aggressive, right? So, of course, when people can't say, my parents are evil for attacking and undermining and, and destroying my natural curiosity, uh, they can't say, well, my parents are evil for doing that. They have to say, well, my curiosity is evil, and this, of course, uh, creates a vast landmine uh, assault zone against any kind of individuality or rationality or curiosity. So because of their own trauma and the fact that kind of two things occurred psychologically, one was that they uh, ended up having to protect their parents and their society and their culture and their extended family, right? Because they had to say, well, these questions are evil, not that my society is evil, which is too much for children to bear. And the second thing, of course, is that they then inflict this on their their younger siblings, they inflict this on others' children, right? So once they've accepted that the questions themselves are evil, like quest, rational questions about religion or whatever, or society or taxes or whatever, once they've accepted that these questions are evil, then because of the argument for morality, the most powerful force in the universe, whatever people define as good and evil is their destiny and their, modifies all their actions, then whenever they catch a whiff of these kinds of questions, then they attack the, the source of these questions, right? Whenever there's any kind of curiosity or criticism or whatever, then they attack that. Now, fundamentally and sort of psychologically, what they're doing is they're attacking themselves, right? So that this is the subjectivity and the projection part of it, right? They, they have doubts, of course, which is why they ask questions, right? Any child who has doubts asks questions, right? I mean, if you, if you don't know how to get somewhere, it's usually good to look it up on MapQuest rather than just start driving randomly. So doubt leads to questions, right? But, of course, doubt and questions are both considered evil, but you don't get rid of those doubts and questions, right? They have to be somewhere, right? So what happens is you then uh, start looking for scapegoats, right? Because your own doubts and questions are not eliminated by calling them evil, right? Any more than sexual desire gets eliminated by calling it evil, right? I mean, let's, let's look at certain clergy, right? So sexual desire and so on, these things don't get eliminated by calling them evil. Saying to uh, women, as is so often said to women, that getting uh, bad-tempered or getting angry is, 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 cru is, is bitchy or, or nasty or whatever is not nice. It's just not nice. That doesn't get rid of, of anger, right? So not talking about pain or frustration or curiosity or whatever, lust, doesn't get rid of it. Calling something evil doesn't eliminate it. So it's not been eliminated in the mind of a Muslim, the, the idea of questions, right? They still exist, and they're, they're persistent, and they're nagging, right? 
deep down, you know, in the wee hours of the morning in their heart of hearts, they have a strong suspicion that it's all bullshit, right? That everything that they've been taught is uh, to control them, and they were lied to, and it's not the questions that are evil. It's the people who call the questions evil who are evil, right? It's their parents, it's their priest, it's their culture, it's their community, right? That is, that is evil, these sort of ideas that corrupt children, interfere with or destroy or undermine at least their capacity to reason and think for themselves, right? So deep down in the heart of every person who's not totally insane, who believes silly things, they know. They know deep down that it's all ridiculous and it's all nonsensical. And so what they do is that they feel, then, of course, that there is a constant evil within them, right? Because the devil then becomes real. And this is true not just for curiosity, but for things like lust and so on, sexual desire, whatever you can define. If you can define some sort of natural process as evil, then you set people up for a nice, juicy, long-term kind of war with themselves, and you make evil sort of omnipresent and, and immediate for people, right? I mean, you think of these ridiculous, uh, I think largely Catholic prohibitions against something like masturbation. It's completely lunatic, right? I mean, all teenage boys, and I'm sure uh, all teenage girls, might as well get tennis elbow and carpal tunnel syndrome from uh, the number of times that, that masturbation occurs when you're that, I mean, you're that young, right? So uh, once you set up that masturbation is evil, and so on, then you get, uh, you know, people get to fade, play this fun soap opera with their natural instincts for the rest of their lives, and so on. Because you can't get rid of curiosity any more than, by calling it evil any more than you get rid of lust or anything else like that. So, what happens then? Well, people then have defined a natural capacity and a good capacity, right? A good capacity to, um, uh, as evil. So, curiosity and rationality is, uh, is evil. And so, they can't master this within themselves, of course. It's absolutely impossible. They can't, they can't, they can't, because it's a natural process. It's sort of like defining your heartbeat as evil, right? Then you're going to be constantly reminded of the presence of Satan or some sort of nefarious deity within your own chest. And so given that they can't get rid of this evil, uh, they themselves feel uh, evil, right? And it's like, I, I should have perfect faith in God, but, you know, when my child dies... Uh, then I can't quite get round to being thankful that that child is with God. I actually feel sad, which is impious, and so on and so on and so on. And I would actually kind of prefer, maybe if I'm a woman, to not have to follow, not to wear the burqa and so on, right? So these questions will naturally occur to everyone all the time in these false, horrible philosophies or fantasies. And they have to continually... Uh, escalate the evil within themselves. And there's a continual process of frustration and escalation at their inability to rid themselves of the evils of doubt or lust or whatever, right? And so this, this, this escalation of aggression is continual, 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 continual. And there's, I mean, there's two ways of approaching it. Either you go low self-esteem and you say, well, I guess I'm just sort of naturally evil, or I'm a special target of the devil, or whatever. And so I have, to, um, I have to keep fighting myself in solitude and so on, which is sort of a more solitary monk-like approach to it. Or you, you employ a handy-dandy uh, unconscious mechanism called projection, where you say that uh, the evil that I have to fight 
uh, is out there in the world, not within my own heart, and it's certainly not the people who lied to me when I was a child. The evil that I must fight and wage war on and kill and destroy and uproot and so on is outside in the, in the, in the world. And so what happens is you begin to start playing out this process of attacking doubt, attacking irrationality, sorry, attacking rationality, attacking questions, attacking curiosity, attacking deviations from a standard. Uh, because it's within your own heart that you have these things, and you should be listening to them and accepting your own doubt and asking questions, but you've been too brutalized as a child, and you've lost, well, let's just say lost, who knows, right? But you've kind of lost the capacity to deal with the problem through introspection. You now uh, have to deal with the problem of continued and growing evil uh, within yourself. You deal with it by projecting that evil into the outside world, right? So, for instance, in the Muslim religion, uh, what's called apostasy, which is a deconversion, a deconversion from Islam, uh, is punishable by death, right? So, if, uh, uh, if you become a, is a Muslim or you're born a Muslim and you break from the faith, you become a non-Muslim, then that is punishable by death, right? So in this particular instance, rationality and doubt is, is punishable by death, right? This is the, it's the natural result of punishing and attacking natural and healthy drives and capacities like rationality and curiosity and so on that you're going to end up having to attack uh, outsiders who exhibit even tiny strains of this uh, particular situation or this particular trait, you're going to have to attack hysterically and in ever-mounting uh, aggression. You're going to have to attack anybody who displays this this characteristic. And of course, you can see this in the media with individualists and so on all the time. And that is uh, sort of the root of the continuing and hysterical aggression that uh, comes out of religious and uh, irrational communities, right? So, and then you have the infinite escalation, right? The purpose of these communities is to find scapegoats, not to maintain, er not to maintain the truth, right? So one of the things that was baffling to me when I was younger was wondering why someone like uh, Stalin or Hitler or Mao continued to escalate in their aggression, right? Once they had, once this, you know, Hitler, for instance, this, this poor bum house painter slash art student, once he'd achieved political mastery of one of the most, well, the most educated country in Europe, and he had nothing but total control over the population, why did he then want war? Why did he want more war and so on? Well, the, the explanation, I believe, is something like this, that your goal is to root out and destroy doubt. And the doubt is within you, which is why it has to be constantly escalated and it becomes hysterical and you know, ridiculously violent and so on. But what happens when everyone conforms, right? So once you get everyone starting to conform, right? So they become frightened of the punishments that are meted out, right? So in Stalinist Russia, if you then don't, if you have doubts about communism or the, the virtue of the party or whatever, or if you have doubts about these things, then you are thrown to a concentration camp, you're shot, you're tortured. I mean, the... Uh, the tortures that went on in Stalinist Russia and Mao's China, they're just absolutely horrendous. So people start to conform, right? They start to go, holy crap. <laughs> not only, if I, if I display curiosity, not only will I become 
dangerously close to identifying the true corruption in my childhood, which was not my questions, but the uh, evil answers, the brutality that was uh, applied against me for asking these questions, not only will it be very dangerous and unpleasant psychologically, very destabilizing, let's say, but also, you know, I'm going to get shot and tortured and killed and sent to concentration camp for 20 years, right? So people begin to conform, right? Of course, right? I mean, who's going to choose? Uh, very few people are going to choose some sort of abstract ideal over 20 years in a concentration camp, especially when the abstract ideal isn't going to change. The world is not going to change if they sacrifice themselves to it. Right? That's certainly my perspective, so I'm not going to say that it's... I'm not going to openly argue that it's the wrong one. So people say, okay, well, I'm going to conform because it's going to be painful and it's going to be brutal if I don't. Right? So then when everybody is openly mouthing the platitudes of the dominant fantasy, communism or religion or statism or democracy or whatever, when everyone's mouthing these platitudes, you'd think that, you know, that would have solved the problem. When no Muslims deconvert anymore because the punishment for it is death, you'd think, okay, well, great, now they've achieved their end, which is not to have Muslims deconvert, and so they'll stop attacking whatever, whatever, right? And you find, though, of course, in reality, that this is not what happens at all that what happens is that the bar moves and the violence escalates uh, further uh, and, and continually until the whole system sort of self-destructs. And that's a pretty important thing to understand and a pretty important thing to, to fathom uh, in its sort of fundamentals. Why is it that these paradigms, even when they supposedly achieve their ends, continue to escalate to the point of, of self-destruction? Well, uh, I think that we can answer that fairly easily. And the principle to understand is the one we've talked about before, that there is no external solution to internal problems, right? So you don't deal with something like insecurity by becoming wealthy or becoming successful or getting a hair transplant or working out or losing weight or dating a pretty girl or dating a pretty boy or anything like that. There is no external solution to internal problems any more than you can put makeup on cancer and have it heal. I mean, if you deal with insecurity successfully by identifying the root cause, getting angry at being corrupted, and taking responsibility, if you get angry at your emotional problems, and if you deal with them and get the bad people out of your life and so on, then the result will be that you will, I think, become more successful and lose weight or whatever, right? And you don't have to sort of somatize or psychologically manifest in your body the issues that you have within your soul. But you can't put the cart before the horse. You don't lose weight and become confident. You become confident and then you lose weight. And you become confident by recognizing and processing the facts of reality and in your history according to objective truth and morality. So, so of course, if the doubts that the Muslims are uh, uh, so hate, that they hate so much, if the doubts and questions and rationality that uh, threaten the Muslim soul are internal, then Conform, getting like gaining external conformity isn't going to solve the problem. In fact, it's going to make it worse. I mean, if you think that you're depressed before you lose weight, think how sad you're going to be when you remain depressed after you lose weight if you haven't dealt with your core issues. Then what happens is the Muslim feels anxiety and, and fear uh, and then says, okay, well, it's the questions that are evil and my parents and society that are good. And so I have to bully myself, and then I have to bully others, and I have to control others, and I have to, right? Because then when, when a Muslim parent has children, 
then the children start asking exactly the same question, and lo and behold, like a pendulum, like a like a clock, the Muslim parent then attacks the children uh, for having exactly the same question questions that the Muslim parent had when he or she were young, and blah 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 blah. Round and round it goes, and of course, then your fate is truly sealed. Right, once you've corrupted your own children, you can't ever. Uh, deal with that, because it can't be undone, right? If you don't feed your child and they grow up malnourished and stunted, you can't go back and feed them again (laughs) and make them healthy, right? Once something can't be undone, your fate is sealed, and that's when you become cancerous and rancorous and, you know, an enemy of all things good, noble, and true. And so, when people begin to conform to what the Muslim believes is virtue, right? That they, you know, the women are all wearing the head-to-toe burqas are not getting educated, and you look at the Taliban society within um, within Afghanistan prior to the invasion, you can sort of see what that looks like, and of course I'm sure it's a lot worse than even any of us can imagine. But uh, this doesn't solve the problem, because what happens is when people become frightened of being bullied and they begin to conform, then the anxiety, which is at the root of the desire to conform, simply returns and escalates, right? So People feel, well, questions are evil, so I've got to attack anyone who shows any sort of doubt. And then what happens is people then conform, and you can't then find as many reasons to attack them. But the, So the anxiety then begins to return back into your consciousness because you're finding it harder and harder to project that anxiety into the outside world, right? So you feel that questions are evil, that your own questions are evil, and you uh, overwhelm that feeling by attacking people in the outside world, and then as you get them to conform, then you haven't gotten rid of your anxiety about questions, right? The need to ask questions, the desire to ask questions, and your basic knowledge that those who lied to you about essentials did so to bully and, you know, based on their own issues, had nothing to do with truth or virtue. And so when you uh, when people uh, conform to your bullying your anxiety returns uh, stronger, right? So what happens then? Well, what you have to do is you have to start inventing transgressions, right? This is, this is pretty natural and inevitable in this, in this realm, right? So if uh, uh, everyone uh, has to um, uh, never uh, express uh, any doubts, uh, sorry, if, if, if people uh, who are 20 can't express doubts, uh, and everyone then conforms, then you have to change it to 18, then to 16, then to 14, right? You always have to keep inventing new people to attack in order to fight and repudiate the knowledge that uh, what you're doing is unjust and that what you need to do is introspect and stop believing in all this nonsense and deal with the real issues which were that your parents lied to you in order to control and, and to bully and humiliate you, right? So... This is one of the reasons why these societies always get worse. The moment that, or it's not really a moment, it's more of a progress, but as people begin to conform more and more to the bullying demands of those in charge, the anxiety uh, uh, begins to return to those in charge, so they have to invent new transgressions and new problems and then have to attack people all over. And, of course, in the complete absence of visible enemies, you have to invent thought crimes. So what you have to do is you have to start inventing things that are going to allow you to attack people. So a sort of classic example of this is if you know anything about sort of the medieval witch hunts, what happened was uh, there was, I mean, lots of complicated reasons psychologically around women and power and so on. It's kind of tough to have a male god who's the source of everything when women sort of obviously give birth. I mean, we can get into all of that stuff another time. But in sort of the medieval witch hunts, you end up with this situation where uh, 
you you sort of uh, you see witches, right? Because they're doing X, right? So women who are up, women who are out after sundown are are witches, right? And have to be uh, tortured into confession. And if they don't confess, it's because the devil's really strong, and you have to torture them even more. And what happens is that. If women are out after sundown, they're witches, that's bad. So what happens naturally and somewhat logically is that women stop going out after sundown, right? So then it's like, okay, I have to keep attacking people because otherwise my own doubts and fears are going to become clear to me. So now it has to be, and but women aren't heading out after sundown. So now I have to invent a new category, which is women who own cats, right? Uh, women who are, have warts. Uh, you just, you keep redefining these things until you find new victims and, you know, eventually it's anyone who breathes, right? <laughs> and this is why you want to set up a repressive system, if you are this way inclined. You want to set up a repressive system wherein inevitable and natural human drives are the enemy because then you'll never run out of uh, victims to persecute, right? So if something like lust is a great evil, well... You're never going to say to somebody, have you felt any lust in the past month and have them say no, right? I mean, you just won't believe it. And then, of course, they'll feel guilty about lying, and so then you set up lying. and So you set, you set up all these things. It's a no-win situation for people, and then it's absolutely inevitable. You're going to end up with more and more victims to persecute, and as victims conform to your persecution, you're going to end up making more and more rules to continue to allow you to persecute. And to return just at the end here to this question of statism, this is sort of what I mean when I say that the welfare state was invented to give the government power. The government didn't take power in order to deal with the poor. The government invents problems in order to expand its power. And there's you know, reasons which you can – I'm not going to sort of go over them all again because I just fin finished them with the Muslim world. They're directly analogous to statism and to the cult of the family and, and all these other sorts of things, but usually it's a little easier to figure these things out looking at some supposedly foreign culture. But the purpose of culture, right, the purpose of culture is not to promote tradition or to have songs or dances or foods or anything like that. The purpose of culture is an endless assault upon individuality. The purpose of culture is an endless attack upon rationality. I was just talking about this uh, with Christina this morning for a variety of questions that she had about herself. And... The whole purpose behind sort of the Greek thing or the Muslim thing or the Jewish thing is not to promote a particular belief, but to attack rationality, to attack and undermine and destroy individuality, curiosity, question, science, rationality. I mean, science in the philosophical moral sense, not just in the sort of physics and biology sense. But the purpose of these beliefs is to attack and to project the original at attack and assault upon the child's integrity, which is being lied to by his or her elders to uh, obscure that original attack by projecting the need to attack into the outside world. So people who say, well, the Muslims are aggressive because they're poor, no, they're poor because they're aggressive. Right? The Muslims are aggressive because they're oppressed. No, they're oppressed because they're uh, aggressive. And they're aggressive because they're irrational. And they won't accept that they're irrational. The irrational has become an absolute, which immediately transforms all doubts into external enemies to be attacked. So it can't be me that has these doubts. I'm virtuous. It must be somebody else who has these doubts. So I'm going to now become my parents and attack other people's uh, curiosity and individuality in the same way that mine was attacked. So uh, you can't solve 
the problems posed by the Muslim world or by the status world or by the family or any of these cults. You can't solve any of these problems without identifying the core irrationality, which is that none of these things exist. God doesn't exist, Islam doesn't exist, an imam is just a guy in a funny hat. The Pope is a ridiculous concept, it's just some doddering old dwarf in a funny hat. Countries don't exist. You just have to say that these are all fairy tales, and of course what's going to happen is that you're going to get attacked, right? This is why, this is why people don't generally do it, right? <laughs> because, and, I wouldn't say that I'm the most shrinking violet in the world, but uh, I get uh, uneasy about the hostilities that I receive for what it is that I'm doing. It's not easy, and uh, that's that's actually a comfort to me, because if it was easy, then the slavery of the world would be sort of incomprehensible, as we talked about before. So I hope that this is helpful in trying to uh, make a case for the psychological progress of why irrationality and uh, attacks upon children translate into general violence and attacks upon the outside world, or those in the outside world, whether within your community or others. And I hope that it helps you recognize that you know, what's called culture is simply a, an endless and constant attack upon the curiosity and individuality of uh, children, which manifests itself in general aggression um, against either insiders or outsiders. Uh, in, in the future. Thank you so much for listening as always. I look forward to donations and I will talk to you soon.